Hello, and welcome to The Goldmine, where you can find new investment insights from your favorite financial writers every day. I'm Barry Ritholtz, and this is Structural or Transitory. Everybody seems to be having a hard time with the word transitory. Part of this is due to the way people experience time in the modern era. Perhaps it would be helpful to reframe this question differently. Let's use a less temporal approach. Consider this question. Are rising prices a structural part of the economy? Are they a permanent fixture part of the outlook for the cost of goods and services for the next decade or longer? Or if we are to dismiss transitory, then we must, by definition, embrace inflation as structural. I simply don't see this in most of the biggest price increases we're seeing. They're not a permanent part of the economy. That is because, warning my priors ahead, the dominant price impetus over the past three decades has been technology-induced deflation. The more recent drivers of inflation all look like pandemic reopening, supply chain driven, and therefore they're not structural, they're temporary, they're transitory. Let's dive deep into the recent record high CPI and see if we can consider some of the bigger components and whether they are structural or transitory in the nature of their current pricing. Let's start with automobiles, both new and used. This is one of the biggest drivers of high prices over the past year and a half, even though they're less than 8% of overall consumption. In fact, new vehicles are about 3.8%, used vehicles are about 3.3%. From March 2020 to August of this year, 2021, used car and truck prices have gone up 43%. New vehicles have gone up nearly 12%. Obviously, This is a reopening issue caused by the semiconductor supply problems. It's not a structural change in long-term car prices. This will moderate once we deal with the semiconductor shortage. And there are signs that this has peaked and is already abating. The CEO of Ford said the semiconductor shortage is improving. Some of it will extend into next year. He said that in September. In October, the CEO of Volkswagen said we've seen the worst of the chip shortage. And then in November, Toyota announced production lines in Japan are scheduled to operate normally for the first time in seven months. Last week, Morgan Stanley noted chip production in Malaysia has returned to full production levels. They expect car production and chip-intensive users, like cloud data services, to improve in the near future. All of the above is why prices for automobiles should start normalizing Q1, maybe Q2, 2022. This is precisely what transitory inflation is versus structural inflation. Let's talk about shelter, one of the largest components of the inflation data. Shelter is 41.7% of CPI. This includes both homes that are owned and rental units, be they apartments or houses. The complication is we have over 95 million owned homes in America, two-thirds of which are owner-occupied, and about 6 million homes change hands each year. So for 90% or so of the public, rising home prices don't really make a difference to their inflation measures. Rising rental prices does come up every year or two. 
This is a complicated aspect of CPI. Housing has been disrupted by the low number of houses built in the years after the financial crisis. We talked about that a few weeks ago. It was exasperated by just a surge of urban dwellers saying, get me the hell out of this cramped apartment during the COVID lockdown. And the so-called death of cities wasn't merely exaggerated. It was dead wrong. Renters have returned to cities in large numbers. The 2020 slash rent prices we saw, they're starting to return to normal or just above. We see some big increases in rent, and part of that is due to the unfavorable year-over-year comparables to the pandemic rent lows when prices dropped during that eviction moratorium. This will likely sort itself out over the next few quarters. Those are the transitory parts of shelter pricing. Other aspects of home prices are indeed structural. Consider changes to state and local regulations that prevent higher density land use. The good news is that new housing units under construction, well, they're now at the highest level since 1974. However, we should harbor no such illusion about the imminent elimination of nimbyism anytime soon. Let's talk about wages. The primary driver of rising wages has been the bottom half of the pay scale, in particular, the bottom quartile. This is where compensation has lagged for decades and is now catching up. Real median wages were unchanged from 1979 to 2014. That's 35 years. And the real minimum wage, well, that was the same in 2015 as it was in 1949. That's 65 years. What's occurring at the bottom of the wage scale is a massive unwind of decades of wages that were actually deflationary in nature. I expect these increases will be sticky, but the annualized rate of gains will moderate. Hence, the best way to think about the bottom half wages is part of a great reset. Yes, we do have a supply-constrained labor force. This is due in part to reduced immigration, early retirements, workers leaving dead-end industries to start new businesses, problems caused by lack of childcare, and of course, COVID deaths. All of these are contributing in part to those rising wages. Next up, energy. It's risen about 30% over the past year. Energy as a component in CPI is about 7.3%. Some of the increase is due to supply-driven issues, but energy has so many cross-currents occurring within it, there's no simple narrative. Prices fell after the 0809 crisis, and that reduced incentives for capital-intensive fracking, which helped limit supply. There are some signs we're going to see more fracking in 2022. The structural portion of this is the move from carbon to green energy. That social preference is helping to drive the price of alternative energies lower. Solar, wind, geothermal, they're still a relatively small portion of the total energy consumption in the U.S., but they're rising as a percentage. And they are a technology, not a commodity-based energy source. Therefore, they have the potential to be deflationary, not inflationary, over time. And finally, let's talk about goods versus services consumption. Consider the balance between how we live our lives and whether we spend more on goods or services. It turns out that goods are 38.7% of the U.S. economy. Services are over 61%. And if you look at a chart of what's going on, courtesy of my friend Constance Hunter from KPMG, you know the services portion of the economy, it fell to under 2% during the pandemic from about 3%. And now it's back to where it was pre-pandemic, right back to about three point something percent. 
On the other hand, goods was flat to negative over most of the last decade. It fell briefly below 1% and now has shot up over 8%. It's goods that are driving this, not services. It doesn't take much to figure out why. Part of the change is just what occurred during the pandemic lockdown. We moved towards goods away from services. That reversed a couple of decades of that ongoing shift. In fact, as an economy, we began buying food via Instacart and Amazon instead of going out to eat. We bought Pelotons and other gym equipment versus going to a gym and signing up for a membership. We purchased large screen TVs instead of going to the movies. We bought cars in Winnebago's instead of going on vacation. In each of these instances, we are purchasing a physical good instead of using a service. And we did so in quantities far outside of what we normally do. It's the opposite of the pre-pandemic trend. And guess what? The supply chain buckled under that load. Prices have risen in many areas. And the question is whether the annualized rate of the increase will stay high or fall back to normal from these elevated levels. I suspect we're about two-thirds of the way through a reset in prices, many of which will prove sticky, but unlikely to continue at an elevated rate of change. Low-end wages are not going back to pre-pandemic levels, but used car prices and gasoline probably will. Aspirational single-family home prices, they're likely to go away also. More supply is coming online from new construction and people who are willing to sell their existing homes. Rentals are back in many places to pre-COVID levels, but the supply shock might be a substantial conversion of overbuilt office space converted to residential. Many of the current prices we see are the new normal, but much of the current annualized rate of increase is not. For more from me, check out the big picture at Ritholtz.com. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is brought to you by Ritholtz Wealth Management. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities mentioned on this podcast. If you're new to investing, check out liftoffinvest.com to get started with us today. Solid.